Women's Emphasis Week. As I told you earlier, I love Missions Emphasis Week. And you have within your bulletin, uh, and for those of you that didn't get one, you're going to want to make sure, there's a faith promise card, and I just want to let you know that you are not going to fill this out today. I don't care how much you want to, you cannot. I figured I'd try a little reverse psychology and see how it worked on you. We're going to be collecting these next week. We currently support missionaries to the tune of, it takes us about $3,805 a month to cover the missions commitments that we have, which comes out to about $45,600 some odd dollars a year. We are able to address new missionary issues and new missionaries that go to the field based on what our faith promises are like. We budget our missions giving based on the faith promises. And I know that throughout the year we have some that have promised to give that move away, others that were not a part of it when they came uh, and didn't have an opportunity. And so we want everybody to be able to participate at whatever level you can at a faith promise. And I'll just tell you this, your faith promise is not your tithe. That 10% belongs to the Lord and His local church. This is believing by faith that God will bring extra money into your life for the purpose of you giving it for the lost of the world. It's a faith promise saying, Lord, as you provide it, I promise that I will give to see more and more souls come to Christ as a result of that. We will be collecting those at the end of the service next week. If you're not going to be here next week and you want to fill one of those out today, you can. But what I'm going to ask you to do is take that with you this week and I want you to pray about it because I know that if you're talking about faith promise, then you need the one who is the giver of faith and the provider of the funds to instruct you on what he wants you to do because he knows how he's going to provide for you. So I want you to be in prayer about that this week. This morning I'm going to share for just a few minutes the title of the message is Committed to the Mission committed to the mission if you have your Bibles you can turn to Romans chapter 1 for those of you that are studiers of the word of God you will recognize that Romans is unique among all Paul's correspondence in the New Testament that he writes to the churches because this letter that he wrote to Rome was a letter that he wrote having never been there it's the most complete theology that he wrote of any of his letters he exhorted the other churches after he had been there, mainly in areas where they needed instruction or needed correction. But as it came to writing to Rome, though he had never personally, uh, because he had never personally visited there, on this occasion he began to give us the most complete, theologically detailed aspect of understanding the saving work of Jesus Christ. And that is to our benefit as we read the book of Romans. And so in Romans chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, he states these words. Paul says, I am obligated, both the Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Now, I would encourage you, if you're taking notes this morning, there's a few things that I would like you to jot down because it applies not only to Paul's life, but I believe there's great application in ours. There were three different words that he used in describing the unction of the Spirit to him and through him for the ministry. And the first one that he says is, he says, I am obligated to the mission. I am obligated to the mission. 
When he talks about being obligated, he describes himself as obligated, and then he begins to list, first of all, to, to the Greeks and then the non-Greeks, and then he says, I'm obligated to the wise and to the foolish. And I, I find that to be kind of a funny distinction between people. It's like when he's writing, he goes, listen, I'm there for the Greeks and for the rest of the world, and then I'm there for the wise people, and then all the stupid people need to hear about Jesus too. Basically, there is no distinction of humanity that he does not feel an obligation to to be able to preach the Word of God to. And he uses the word here, obligated, and the, and the, the Greek word for obligated is ophilistate. And it really means that there is a debt that is owed. It means there is something that he carries with him that he is obligated to repay. It describes, this word would also be used to describe a financial obligation, such as a mortgage. In other words, he says, I'm feeling the weight of this obligation that I have to preach the gospel to the whole world. Now, for those of you that own homes, you recognize that if you have a loan on your house, that your bank probably sends you a monthly uh, declaration and it doesn't come with on the front of the envelope saying, this is just a suggestion. If you would like to put something toward your obligation, stick a couple of bucks in the envelope, lick it, seal it, and send it to us at your leisure. How you desire to do this because we're all about service for you at this point. No, we, we understand that we get one that says, this is a bill. And then they give you two little lifts there. One that if you pay on time, you owe this much. If you miss that, you owe this much. Because they begin to add interest onto that. It's not something that is forgiven or can be escaped from unless it is paid. And so Paul begins to describe with this word, I am obligated, I feel the weight of this debt that I owe to Jesus Christ, that everybody has an opportunity to hear about Jesus. Everybody that all would hear. The mission to which the Lord committed Paul, he understood that it wasn't something that he had a choice about. He had no option. In fact, he describes in Acts chapter 26, verse 19, in his speech before King Agrippa, he uses these words. He said, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring Jesus' offer of forgiven forgiveness for sins. In other words, everywhere I went, I was not disobedient to the obligation that I had. I would tell anybody and everybody about what Jesus Christ had done for them. He understood his obligation to the spiritually lost was on him personally. Now here's the interesting thing about this for us. I have read the whole Bible more than once. Many of you have as well. And there is no place in Scripture that it is recorded that you and I as believers have been released from the same obligation. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that this was the ministry of the Apostle Paul, but not of the church. In fact, in many cases, it begins to describe to us that we who know Jesus Christ walk under the same obligation of being able to share the good news of Jesus Christ to anyone and everyone. Paul expresses this concern and this obligation as he begins to write in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and in verses 10 and 11 he says this as he talks about the motives of the heart. He says, we must, now we being us, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one 
may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. In other words, he's saying, listen, let me tell you how this is going to end for you. You who know Jesus Christ are going to stand before him one day and you're going to give an account for what you did with the message and you will receive reward or you will have your good works burned up before you based on the obligation and how you fulfilled that. He said that fear alone should motivate us. But he goes on in verses 14 and 15. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again in other words let me rearrange the priorities of your life once I come and sit on the throne of your day when you ask me to come in and cleanse you when you ask me to forgive you of your sins when you ask me to come and take lordship of your life I then retain all of the rights to rearrange your life and your day however I choose because it's my right as the king that sits on the throne of your life that you should no longer live for yourself but for the one who was raised again. And then in verse 18, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself and gave us. Who's the us that's mentioned here in scripture? That would be us. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now I know that some of you are saying, you know what? You're the professional pastor. You've got the ministry. That's why we bring people here so you can tell them about Jesus. Let me tell you something. You're going to be stunned when you stand before God and recognize that he has placed upon each of you an anointing of the Holy Spirit for the ministry that he has given you. You have a story that I do not have. You have a testimony that is unique to you that there are people that will respond to that because they desperately are in need of something that gives them a life worth living. It's your ministry that God gave to you. And then in verse 20 it says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. That we, by the way, is all of us. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God, listen to this, as though God were making his appeal through us. When we talk about an anointing of the Holy Spirit or the unction or the, the motivation of the Holy Spirit in our life, what we are talking about here is that when the opportunities come for you under the obligation of being a child of God to speak to him, he begins to apply his presence to you in, an, in a way that when you begin to speak, you are speaking under his direction. And he will give you what you need at just the moment that you need it because God is making his appeal to the lost through you. Now, as you look at the book of Acts, there's a lot of interesting things that take place there. But one of the things I discovered that was particularly fascinating to me was that in the book of Acts, it contains four instances where angels appeared. In one incident, it was in Acts chapter 8, verse 26, where the angel appeared to Philip and told him to go to a desert road, and there he encountered the Ethiopian uh, treasurer, jumped on his cart, led him to Christ, baptized him in a mud puddle in the middle of the desert, and then he disappears and ends up in Azotus. The next one is found in Acts chapter 10, verses 3 through, 3 through 6, when an angel appears to Cornelius, and the angel tells him to send for Peter and tell him to come, and so that Peter can come and, and share the gospel with him. Now, I ask you this. Do you think that the angels know the gospel message? How many of you would say, yes, they do, by show of hands? You believe the angels know 
plan of salvation. Now, there's some of you who say, I'm not raising my hand. I don't know where you're going with this until I know. I might be volunteering for something, and I'm, I'm just not into that just yet. So there are a few of you that think that the angels have a knowledge of the salvation story. I believe they probably all do. So what's interesting here, so if the angels know the salvation story, why didn't the angels take the message when they were already talking to the people? Why didn't the angels just say, hey, we don't need Peter for this. I know the story, and I could probably tell it in a more compelling fashion than Peter can. You would think of anything that if an angel showed up to tell you a story, you're going to be more attentive than if a person came to tell the story. And yet in the instances of the scripture, the angels never once shared the gospel message. They prepared the way for people who did. And you begin to look at that and say, why is that? And I'll tell you why. It's because angels aren't responsible to proclaim the gospel. We are. Let that sink in for a minute. The angels prepared the way, told them where to go, prepared the area, and backed off and let God's people do the work because that's what God's people were called to do. In His mercy and His wisdom, God has designed us to be carriers of the gospel so that we can have the experience to lead people into Christ's salvation and have the privilege of sharing it with others who don't know. And another reason that the angels don't share the gospel is because they don't get reward. We do for the obedience that we have. The second thing that Paul mentioned in this particular verse was that he was eager for the mission. He uses the term eager, and the Greek word here is pathomos. It's the root word of thumos, which really means with great passion. It also can be used with great anger. But what it connotes to us is that there is a very strong feeling within Paul. He says, I am passionate. I'm eager to come and share the message. It's one thing to recognize that we are under obligation for a debt. It's another thing to be excited about paying it. This is what he's describing to us. I am excited. I'm passionate. I'm enthusiastic about the opportunities to pay the debt that I have to Jesus Christ for what he has done for me. There is a joy of salvation that should be accompanying our lives. And if you're not a joyful Christian, you need to get a hold of the power of the Holy Spirit and let him transform you because there should be joy in your life at knowing Jesus Christ the Savior. One of the things that I, I really love is that when our church experiences those who come and, and are brand new, just when they first come to know Christ as Savior, and there's an enthusiasm about them that, that can become infectious to all of us. There's a joy. They can't wait to go into the world that they lived and begin to share the good news of the gospel with all of those who had walked with them in sin before so that they can bring them to the place of knowing. I love new birth, and I love that excitement. Paul begins to remind those of us who may have walked with Christ for a long time. In Romans chapter 12, verse 11, he says this, Never be lacking in zeal. In other words, don't ever let your first love experience wane. If it does, plug back in. But keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. The New American Standard Bible says it this way, Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in the Spirit, serving the Lord. Oh, that God you would give us within our hearts a fervency to serve you and be about your business. The third word that Paul uses as he begins to describe this mission that he's on is 
The word unashamed. Paul was unashamed of the mission. To be obligated involves an issue of the mind. An obligation is something we know and understand, but it doesn't speak to our emotions. Eagerness, as he described it on the other hand, is is an issue of the heart and of the emotions, of a passion and of a readiness. But to be unashamed is an issue of both the heart and the mind, and it involves our emotions and our intellect, and it also begins to speak to the motivation of why we do what we do. I've often wondered what it is that holds me back, and I will speak to me. There are opportunities that I know that the Lord has given, and for whatever reason, there are moments of hesitation, and I hold back, and and I often wonder, why is that? that I sometimes hold back when I feel the Lord saying, this is an opportunity. And I have to constantly ask myself, is it because I'm unashamed? Or is it because I'm ashamed? Or is it because I'm afraid of the persecution? Or I don't want to hear what they have to say? Or I don't want to have to go through a battle? But whatever it is, and I pray that if you experience this as well, that there would be a moment in your prayer life you'd say, Lord Jesus, I need you to come and make yourself and what you've done in my life so real that any fear that I have, you would drain out like old oil and replace it with an unction and a love for people that will help me overcome these things. Paul's unashamed view of the gospel was rooted primarily in his knowledge of what Christ had done for him. And the reason that Paul was unashamed of the ministry had nothing to do with his background or his personality. It wasn't because of his self-confidence that he had, because of his education under Gamaliel, one of the foremost rabbis of the day, and it wasn't because of his eloquence and rhetoric, which was significant. It wasn't just because of his passion, because that was evident. His confidence, listen to this, because this is going to help us. His confidence in being unashamed of the gospel is because it tells us in Romans 1.16, for it, it being the, the gospel, it is the power of God for salvation. The news that we speak is the power. It's the power of God for salvation. And we look at that and we hear that and we think, oh Lord Jesus, you know, I, I'm shy. I'm timid. Give us more power with our words, oh Lord. So what are the implications of this text upon your life today? What is it that informs your personal missions statement for your life? What are the significant facts that move us to do more than just sit here and listen to God's Word and complain when things don't go the way we want them and look around with a critical eye? What is it that motivates your heart today and that will motivate you to wholehearted obedience? I want to share with you very quickly three inescapable facts as you consider your part in the mission. The first fact that we have to come to grips with is this. Humanity is lost. Secular culture tries to explain away man's sin. The plagues of immorality and violence are attributed to poverty and social injustice and even genetics. And the blame is placed everywhere except where it belongs. And that is that man has a sinful heart. We are sinful people. And from the time of the early church, Many have wished and speculated that all people will eventually somehow reach heaven. And we've even 
promoted that in some ways that it really doesn't matter how you live or what you say because if you're a good person God's going to have mercy and everybody's going to go to heaven but I want you to know something God's word clearly tells us that there are those that are saved and those that are lost and mankind is lost lost many people even in our own country claim to be Christians but do not personally know Christ and they are as lost as those whom others would consider to be heathens and a heathen would be one that doesn't even acknowledge the existence of God or of the Word of God. I would tell you today that acknowledging the, the existence of God and submitting to His cleansing and submitting to His Lordship are different things. There are a lot of people in our world that believe that God exists but have never once yielded their life to Him. And so God's will for the lost is plain in Scripture. And Jesus reveals the priority of heaven. And you can find this really interestingly in two parables that you find in Luke 15. And you don't have to turn to them, but let me just mention them to you. The first is the parable of the lost sheep that's found in Luke 15, 3 through 7. The second is the parable of the lost son that's found in verses 11 through 32. And in those two parables... The Lord begins to describe the lost in two different ways. There are those that are wandering lost, those that have no knowledge of the Lord, no, no, no one to speak to them about the Lord. We have two billion people in our world that are wandering lost because there's nobody to tell them. The second parable talks about those who are willfully lost. Those who have heard the good news of Jesus Christ and for whatever reason said to the Lord, I am not interested in following you. I'll do my own thing because I can plan my life better than you. And I will choose to do that and wander away from the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we pray, we pray that God will allow the, the instances of their life to bring them to a place of being humbled and coming back home. The wandering lost and the willfully lost. And the Father loves them both. Peter said in 2 Peter 3.9 that the Lord wants no one to perish but all to come to repentance. So the first inescapable fact is that humanity is lost. The second inescapable fact is that eternity is certain. Eternity is certain. There may be some of your friends that are particularly interested in eternity this week because they've heard some of the stories about that we might only be on this earth for three more days. I don't care what the Lord's timing is. I know my name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life and I don't have to worry about those things because when the trump of the Lord sounds, I'm going! Our culture is increasingly oriented to the present and passions demanding instant gratifications dominate and our perspective on life is naturally framed in times. But God's perspective of life and of our, of, of our being is eternal. We hear the term perish as we hear it in John 3.16 and 2 Peter 3.9 but I want you to understand that the word perish is different than just dying. Because I want you to know that once you are alive in the instant that your body began to be woven together in the womb of your mother, there was an eternal part of you that will never, ever, ever cease to exist. From that moment of creation, you exist in eternity. We all have a, be a beginning, but God's Word indicates that we will never end. It tells us in Matthew 25, verses 41 and 46, then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into eternal fire. Then they will go away into eternal punishment, 
eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Let that sink in for a moment. As I was preparing myself this week, there were, there were moments I had to just sit back from the typewriter and let the truth of this settle in my heart. It was a computer, not a typewriter, for those of you that are laughing at me. There were many of you. I'm 56. Give me a break. Boy, that just ruined the moment, didn't it? I had to sit back and let eternity settle into my spirit for a moment. Partly because I've grown up in the blessing of being a child of God and why God chose to allow me to be born in America, that huge blessing I do not know. Why he allowed me to be chosen to be born into a family of godly people, I do not know. Except that I bear on my heart the obligation and the eagerness and the passion to share the blessing that I've got with others. But because of that, I often think of eternal life in heaven. Because I know that's where I'm going and I trust that if the Lord chooses during this service to rapture us, that there wouldn't be anybody left here and that we would all be celebrating together on the other side. But let this sink into you for just a moment. There will be billions of people, billions of people who will be cast into outer darkness in the lake of fire. And while we talk about eternity being a place where we get to enjoy the benefits of heaven and being with God forever and everything is perfect, there will be billions of people whose eternity will never end that will suffer fear, excruciating pain, outer darkness, isolation, forever and ever and ever and ever. In Revelation chapter 5, in verses 1 through 4, John the Revelator was writing and he had this vision. And this is such a powerful, powerful part of Scripture because he says this and beginning with verse 1 of Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on it on both sides. And it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside of it. And John says in verse 4, And I wept, and I wept, because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. There comes this moment as he's looking in this vision that he'd been given of heaven where the Father's holding the scroll and the angel cries out, Who's worthy? And in heaven, everybody that's there and all the angelic beings, it went silent because they recognized there's no righteousness found in humanity. And he begins to cry because no one is worthy to open it. No one is worthy to help the sinfulness of mankind. And as he is weeping, he understands there is no hope apart from Christ. You are hopeless apart from Christ. Thomas Watson stated this, Thus it is in hell. They would die, but they cannot. 
The wicked shall be always dying, but never dead. The smoke of the furnace ascends forever and ever. Oh, who can endure thus to be ever upon the rack? And the word ever breaks my heart. George Whitfield used to speak with tears in his eyes of the image of people that were in his mind in torment that were burning their bodies literally glowing like livid coals not for an instant and not for a day but for millions and millions of angels at the end of those millions of ages they will understand that they are no closer to the end than they are to the beginning they will never be delivered from that place never be delivered from that place The way that we talk about hell, and I understand that this is not a popular topic to talk about, but the way that we talk about hell often leaves people with the image that hell is like a third world country. Yeah, you don't want to go to hell. You're not going to have any running water there. You might not have any indoor bathrooms. There are those that talk about hell like it's going to be a big party with all of their friends and that everything that God frowns upon will all be going on there and that it's going to be this wonderful little... I want you to know something. If the knowledge of what people are going to face in hell doesn't motivate us, then I don't know what will. They are lost without Jesus Christ. The third escapable truth that should motivate your philosophy of missions is this. Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. The greatest news in all the world is that the slaughtered Lamb of God reigns as the sovereign Lord of all. Revelation chapter 5 verse 5 after John begins to weep because he recognizes that there's nobody that's worthy to open the scroll it says this one of the elders said to him weep no more behold the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David has conquered and he can open the scroll and its seven seals and suddenly all of the prophecies from the Old Testament about who Jesus Christ is is revealed to him and Jesus the slaughtered lamb of God steps up for us because we couldn't step up for ourselves John chapter 1 verse 29 says look look the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world we can declare today, I know Jesus and He's my Savior. And we can point to a lost world that He can take away their sin as well. Throughout history from the beginning of time, men have come and men have gone. Women have come and women have gone. All of them, the noblest of them, the kindest of them, the strongest of them and the greatest of them, all of them have fallen prey to sin. There's not one of us that can stand and say, I've lived a perfect life or even a good life. All of them, every single man and every single woman was a slave to Satan. All of them, generation after generation, century after century, every single man and every single woman succumbed to death. But then there came another man, unlike any man or any woman that has ever come before. And this man did not fall prey to sin. He possessed power over sin. The man was not enslaved to Satan. He enslaved himself to righteousness of his father this man did not succumb to death he triumphed over death in the grave and he said he's opened the door for each of us how did he do that because he suffered as a slaughtered lamb 
for you and for me to pay a price that we could not pay. The Bible, as it describes Jesus Christ throughout the entire Bible, uses words like this. He was marred. He was despised. He was rejected. He was stricken. He was smitten. He was afflicted. He was wounded. He was chastised, oppressed, and pulverized in our place. And all who hide under the banner of his blood will be saved. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God not only endured death in our place, but he has defeated death by his power. He bears the scars of death, and yet he is sovereign over death. There is a song that some of you will recognize, and let me read you these words. Crown him the Lord of love. Behold his hands inside. Those wounds yet visible above in beauty glorified. No angel in the sky can fully bear that sight, but downward bends his burning eyes at mysteries so bright. Crown him the Lord of life who triumphed over the grave and rose victorious in the strife for those he came to save. His glories now we sing who died and rose on high, who died eternal life to bring and lives that death may die. Glory be to the name of Jesus Christ. And in Revelation 5 verse 7, and he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Breathtaking audacity. Spectacular salvation through sacrifice. The consummation of the kingdom comes to us through the crucified Son of the living God who looked at us in love and said, Father, I'm not willing that they should perish. I will go and pay the price for their sin. I will take the damnation that they deserve and I will give to them righteousness that they could never have earned on their own. Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, Jesus was obedient to death, even death on the cross, which is the most humiliating of all deaths. Therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So I proclaim to you today that Jesus is both the door and the way. John 14, 6 says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so when people try to trap you and say, are you trying to tell me that Jesus is the only way to heaven? And we try to backpedal in, in trying to be presenting him in such a way that no one will be offended. The Lord tells us to stand up and say, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Because their eternity is determined by knowing the truth. That Jesus is the only way because he was the only sacrifice. Forgiveness of sin and eternal life are not granted merely for believing in God's existence, for distinguishing right from wrong. Peace with God is obtained through faith in Jesus who broke down the wall of separation between our holy, loving creator and the sinfulness of our own mankind. And Ephesians 2, 13 says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away from God, because of our sin, have been brought near.
by the blood of Jesus Christ. Do you notice in here it doesn't say anything about your good works earning you heaven? It doesn't say anything in here about, well, I'm better than most. 49% of people are worse than me. It says nothing about that. It says everything about your eternity is based on what you do with Jesus and His crucifixion. In Christ's birth, God came near to us, but in His death, He brought us near to Him. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to man by which we must be saved, it tells us in Acts 4. Only through Jesus Christ can anyone be set free from the consequences of sin and Satan's power? While salvation is easy, it is not simple. In Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 15, it says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord be saved. Do you know what a joy that is? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then it says this, How can they, how then can they call on the one whom they've not believed in? How can they believe in the one whom they've not heard? How can they hear without somebody preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? That's why we have faith promises. That's why I am unafraid and unashamed to tell you to rearrange, rearrange the priorities of your financial life so that you can take a greater portion in the last day's salvation of souls through sending and giving than you ever have before. Because when you stand before God, you'll give account for everything that He sent through your hands. He owns it all. Two billion people in our world today can never sit in a church like this right now and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're lost. They are going to spend eternity in everlasting torment if we do nothing. Some of you may remember some years ago a movie called Schindler's List. Oscar Schindler was a businessman who loved life and he couldn't stand that Jewish people were being annihilated. He rearranged everything in his life so that he could save a few.